This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we're actually at the world headquarters mm. of the Steve. international headquarters. The, the international. This, these are the galactic headquarters, as far as I know. We're not the multi-world headquarters, though. There are an infinite number of those. So we're still in the introduction. We've gone way off rail. <laughs> I mean, we haven't got going. Yeah. I'm with Steve Sashin. He is the CEO of Zero Shoes. We're in the conference room, and he and I met recently. We did. At a celebration for Boulder Industries. Welcome to the show, Stephen. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, I say that as if it's going to be. I don't know yet. But well, I'm assuming. You know, so far, my pleasure. It, we're, this could go off the rails from here. <laughs> and folks are going to go, this is going to be bad. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. When a mommy loves a daddy very much. Then, okay, <laughs> Zero Shoes is a footwear brand based on a really simple idea. Think of it this way. You've been on your feet all day. Maybe you just finished a long run or a long workout. You come home, you kick off your shoes, you wiggle your toes. Do you feel better? If so, you've been wearing the wrong shoes. Or if you haven't accidentally gotten into bed still wearing your shoes because you forgot you were wearing them, you've been wearing the wrong shoes. And it's not your fault because footwear for the last 45, 50 years, especially performance footwear, has been made with a design philosophy that guarantees discomfort and there's literally nothing you can do to fix it. So we make addictively comfortable footwear designed based on your foot. A quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body are in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. And so you're supposed to use these things. They're supposed to bend, to flex, to move, to feel the world. If you don't let them do their job, that function tries to move up into your ankles, your knees, your hip, and your back and can cause pain. So we make shoes designed for feet. They've got a nice wide toe box. Here, I'll hold one up. Nice wide toe box. Oh, I'll hold one up. Wide toe box so your toes can spread and relax. We don't elevate your heel because that messes with your posture. They're super, super flexible so that your feet can bend and move. They're low to the ground for balance and agility. And the soles are really thin. They give you the right combination of protection, but they also let you get that feedback that your brain needs to know how to use your feet and everything in between. There's now research coming out from Harvard and from BYU and from researchers in Brazil showing how true minimalist footwear like ours, and I say it that way because there's some products sold as minimalist, but they aren't. But true minimalist footwear can actually improve foot muscle strength, can be helpful with plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis, or actually not Achilles tendonitis, they haven't done that one, or um, so what I'm looking for, knee osteoarthritis and balance. So we make footwear people use for everything from taking a walk to running ultramarathons. We do sandals and shoes, casual and performance. And the gist is we let your feet be feet. There was reading back through kind of the story a bit. And what people may not know about you and likely don't know Probably not. is that you're a sprinter. Some people don't know that. Yeah. I mean, you can't tell by looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure where to go with that, but okay. Well, yeah. Well, you know, wait, I got to say something funny about that. So I'm a competitive sprinter. I'm a 56-year-old guy. There's a whole master's track and field circuit. My original goal when I got back into sprinting was to win a bunch of races. Once I kind of got the lay of the land about how the sprinting world was going, I just want to show up and when I line up at the starting line to have people in the audience going, what the hell is he doing here? And then when I beat most, if not all of the people, they're going, what the fuck just happened? So that's what I do. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up, because historically, you were not a sprinter in, in school. Until I was 16, 17, I was the fastest kid anybody knew. And then when that's like junior, senior year of high school, when everybody else got taller and I didn't, 
then my best friend was faster than me. And well, I was already a gymnast. I became an all-American gymnast. But on the track world, I was a long jumper and a pole vaulter. And I stopped sprinting then. My coach, who was the science teacher, didn't know how to work with sprinters. And so there was no reason to be working with me when there was one guy faster than me on the team already. Mm-hmm. And I didn't start sprinting again until I was 45, so almost 30 years later. So, you know, I think about the folks going out there, well, wow, that's kind of strange to start your sprinting career again. Yeah. And that was the genesis, as I understand yeah. it. So for the folks going like, well, what tell me the story. Yeah. So when I got back into sprinting, I was getting injured pretty much constantly. Like every other week, I'd pull, rip, tear, break something, it seemed. At one point, I'm, I'm hobbling across the kitchen floor, and my wife, Lena, says, are you having a good time? And I said, oh, you have no idea how much. So not from the injuries, but just I was so enjoying. Uh, look, if you're going to have an identity, sprinter is a good one. It's a lot of fun. So all this injury, one after the other after the other. And a friend of mine is a world champion cross-country runner. And after a few years of constant injuries, he said to me, try running barefoot, see if you learn anything. The short version of this is what I learned is A, why I was getting injured, and B, how to stop getting injured. And the answer for that one is because when you're running barefoot, doing it wrong hurts and doing it right does not. And so I just kept trying to do it right. And my injuries went away. I got faster. I became a master's all-American sprinter. Technically, for men over the age of 55, you are arguably looking at the fastest Jew in the world. Is that a category? I haven't seen an actual category. (laughs) I just looked at the list one day and went, I think I'm the only one. And I don't have much of a Jewish identity except for that joke. So, but it's true. And for what folks don't know, Uh that you also were for 10 years a comedian. Oh, yeah, that was my full-time gig. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, back to the important stuff. So, so after this barefoot experience, I knew that having getting as much feedback as possible was a good thing. But it was also helpful to be able to get into restaurants and places like Whole Foods, where amazingly, they don't let you in barefoot, but they're totally fine if you're breastfeeding your dog. So I made these sandals that were based on a 10,000-year-old idea. Just got some rubber from a footwear repair place, got some string from Home Depot, whipped up this 10,000-year-old design idea. And that's what I was living in. And people kept saying, ooh, I want some of those. So they told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends. And then one day, a guy who had a contractor write a book on barefoot running said, if you had a website and treated this hobby like a business, I would put you in my book. And I had been an internet marketer since 1992. I'd probably built over a thousand websites. So I rushed home, pitched this idea to my wife, said, hey, here's it is. What do you think? She goes, it is a horrible idea won't make any money. Do not do this. It's a distraction from other things we're doing. Uh, Just please, just, you know, just stop it, ADD boy. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. And so Lena goes to bed around nine and by 10, I had a website up. (laughs) So she kind of growled at me the next day. I said, it's a search engine marketing experiment. The people that are ranking for barefoot running and all the keywords I care about now, they're there by accident. I can probably own this in about three months. And it's not really the way it happened. It only took me two. But what we thought was going to be like a car payment, little lifestyle business just took off within a month and a half. It was our full-time gig. Eight months into it, we have guys from who'd started at Reebok 40 years ago when it's a tenth of the size that we are now, smaller actually than what we are now. We're sitting around our kitchen table or for tax purposes, conference room table, telling us how to run our business and giving us hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of help and advice and design ideas and actual design work. And it just took off. And we have been mind-blowingly lucky all along the way, meeting incredible people who are working for us or have been helpful for us. And that's the gist of how we got here now. 
I think about the genesis of many business ideas. The genesis? That's the name of this sandal. I'm so good at this. <laughs> I actually have that sandal at oh, home. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So I have that at home. You think of it, so okay, you started out making the shoe that you were wearing. Mm-hmm. And at some point... Well, we started out selling... What the business was for the first three and a half years was selling this do-it-yourself sandal kit and based on this 5,000-year-old idea. That was... And we would custom make things for people too. They'd send us a tracing of their foot. We would make it. We'd send it to them. We thought that was going to be our business. And the way it evolved since then, if you had asked me even then to predict where we are now, there's no way I could have done it. So did you actually do the cutout of all the soles and all of this? The original, original product was a big sheet of rubber that we cut into smaller sheets of rubber that we sold with lacing and instructions. The next product, the one that those former Reebok guys helped us with, they designed a pre-made outsole for us that we had manufactured. So you got something that looked more like a foot to begin with that had the holes that you needed for the ankle lacing already built into it Mm -hmm. that had a tread. We basically improved on that original just sheet of rubber product Mm -hmm. into something that looked like a shoe. And so that was already made. So simpler version of the same idea. You know, I I think about the, the transition from the kitchen table to now. No, not kitchen table. Conference room table. No, well, actually, it really started literally on the floor of a corner of a spare bedroom. And Lena and I had debates about whether we should buy a table because it was $35. I mean, it's a lot of money to spend on, you know, something like this. And then we had a bigger debate when we needed two more tables. And then soon the business was that spare bedroom, the other bedroom that was Lena's office. I had my office and everything in the taking over the entire basement. We had someone sitting at our conference room table in our dining room. I don't know why we put a conference room table there who was doing customer service. We had our fulfillment guy in the entire living room area where there was no furniture any longer. And then all the inventory was in the garage. For a while of this, my wife thought it would be nice to have a house to ourselves every now and then and not just from 10 p.m. till 7 a.m. You know, so you transitioned at some point to shoes. Shoes. Mm -hmm. Well, the transition went from cut out do-it-yourself kit pre-made, if you will, do-it-yourself kit, ready-to-wear version of the do-it-yourself kit, which was a thong-style sandal. The way it happened is, love the kit, I'm not going to make it. So then we did the ready-to-wear version. Love the ready-to-wear thing, but I don't like stuff between my toes. Even though this lacing system, which I invented and is patented, uh, does not do that same thing like flip-flops, where you have to grip with your toes and mess up your posture and your gait. This holds on your foot. We've had people run ultra marathons in a pair of simple sandals like this. But so don't like stuff between my toes. We came up with a sports sandal version. So a lacing webbing goes across your toes to, hey, I love that, but I need something a little more trail friendly. So we did the trail version of that. Hey, I love that, but I need shoes for my office. So we did a casual shoe. Hey, I love that, but I need a performance shoe. So we did a performance shoe. So it's expanded in concert with our customers telling us what they need next and us having ideas about what would help grow the business and things they haven't necessarily said they need next, but we know they would need next that would expand our market. I was just thinking about going from where you have fairly good control to yeah. having to None. having manufacturing oh. and the whole process of going yeah. from that to... Do you have a spike that I can stick through my eye socket right now? I'll lend you a pen. Oh, that'll work. It, it's dull. That's okay. I'll press, I'll press hard. Yeah, manufacturing... I think the technical term is, uh, it's a bitch. And I don't care where you're manufacturing or who's doing it. No one can give it the attention that you want and demand on every product. The bigger you get, the harder that gets. So yeah, it is a challenge. I've gotten to the point where 
when we get a sample of a product, I no longer run from the room screaming. I just shake my head. And then we solve the problem. You're shifting toward the folks that, that are passionate about your shoes. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular demographic or... We cater mostly to people who have feet. That's uh, pretty much... Well, that's almost everybody. I got to tell you, it's actually... Yeah, it's, well, that's what I said, pretty much. We had someone <laughs> email us one day and say, my father was in an accident and he's had four of his toes removed. Which sandal would be best for him? We, our audience is primarily health and fitness minded men and women, people who shop at Whole Foods, people who sometimes runners is where it started, obviously, but it's expanded way past there. When we first started the company, we knew that this was more than just barefoot runners who were interested in this. Lena and I are walking on uh, Pearl Street in downtown Boulder, and this gaggle of girls runs up to us. Oh my God, those things are so cool. Where'd you get those? And we knew that we were onto something. We were on Shark Tank in 2013. And after the show, we got phone calls from people. Oh, you know, I'm not a runner. I'm not a barefoot person, whatever, but I love these. We knew there was a much bigger market than what we had originally started with. And so it's, again, health, fitness-minded, wellness people for now. The value of what we're doing extends, and I know this sounds hyperbolic, and I know that as a marketer, the last thing you want to say is this is for everybody, but this is for everybody. Not necessarily our company or our brand. There'll be versions of this that expand. But the idea of natural movement is for everyone, full stop. I've never said full stop before. That was fun. Because that's the way your body is designed. You're supposed to use these things, not put them in a cast and immobilize them. A friend of mine, he's a physician. He said, what I was taught in med school is the foot is this horribly designed structure that needs support and careful attention. What I've learned from getting people into minimalist footwear is the foot is an amazing structure that can do everything you want it to if you let it. And so we know that this can be, or there's science that's coming out that's starting to show that this can be beneficial for elderly people who have been losing their balance because they haven't been able to use their feet for years. To kids who um, are making the transition out of shoes and suddenly having gait problems. To people who've had plantar fasciitis or knee osteoarthritis or hip pain, or back pain, or ankle pain, all the things that are currently being treated with immobility, thick, stiff shoes, and orthotics, there's a high probability that the vast majority of those things are treated better by natural movement. Well, I have a high arch. So what? Oh, I have flat feet. So what? So, you know, in in the the typical discussion is this, oh, I need arch support. Yeah, from the guys who made up arch support who sold you on that idea. But so what? Arch height is predominantly genetic and partially controlled by the strength of your arch. So flat feet, I had flat feet, like comical flat feet for my whole life until I started going barefoot and using my feet and I developed an arch, not a high arch, but when I step out of a pool now, uh, my footprint doesn't look like a paddle, it looks like a footprint. And I was at a chiropractic conference and the guy who was running it said to the other chiropractors, if you have to pay Stephen to let you feel his feet, pay him five bucks, but check these things out. They have a name for that. Yeah, I know, but I'm not going to go there. So, but I didn't let them lick my feet. I just let them touch my feet with their hands, clean hands. But the point is that I've got these really strong arches now and I've had them for quite a while, not just today. So that's what happens. High arches. Sometimes you need to do some massage to loosen things up a little bit. By and large, there's a sprinting coach that I know of who had a great line. He goes, strength solves most problems. And that's true across the board, especially as you start getting older. And you don't get strong by immobilizing something. You put your arm in a cast, it comes out weaker. Same thing with your foot. You put your foot in a cast, which is most shoes that don't let your feet move naturally. And what a shock, they get weaker over time. You give it arch support. Oh, I don't have it here. Oh, wait, hold on. I'm going to grab something off this. Yep. Yep. Oh, we have visual aids. 
for you guys listening, you'll have to imagine. Building an arch with some blocks. These are trapezoidal blocks. That's not going to be helpful. That I'm using to make a arch out of. You know, it looks like a wide horseshoe. Yeah, it's an upside down horseshoe. So an arch architecturally is a really strong structure. The keystone keeps it all in place. You can push down on it really hard. In fact, the harder you push, the stronger it gets. If you want an arch to collapse, what do you do? You support it from the bottom. You push up from the bottom, the whole thing falls apart. Same thing with your foot. You support it, it gets weaker. There was a company, there is a company, who ran an ad for a while about their insoles, their orthotic insoles. And it's, uh, it was a drawing of a barefoot in profile, and next to it was a drawing of a barefoot with their arch support. And it said, 34% less stress instantly. And I said, are you measuring, quote, stress by measuring muscle activation with an electromyograph? They said, yeah, very excited that I knew what that was. And I said, so you're telling me the moment I step on this thing, I get uh, 34% weaker because I have 34% less muscle activation. Wouldn't it be better to put my foot in a cast and have 100% less stress then? Well, you know, how much less stress, how much weaker is better for you? When does weaker ever make sense? If you went to a doctor and said, you know, my neck is bothering me. And he said, well, we're going to have to put your wrist in a cast for the rest of your life. You'd go, I'm sorry, what? Are you insane? But when you go to a doctor and say, ah, you know, my back is bothering me. He says, well, we're going to have to mobilize your foot for the rest of your life. You go, well, yeah, that makes sense. And it only makes sense because people have been doing this now for about a little over 40 years, for a couple generations. And after a few generations, it becomes, quote, common wisdom or just the way it is. That doesn't mean it was right. It's like Betamax and VHS. VHS won, even though it was not the better idea. The footwear ideas that are currently popular won, but they are by far not the better ideas. You know, I, I think about all of the things we grew up thinking about and all the things that our parents shared with us because that's what they thought. We thought atoms were little balls rotating around other little balls. That's not the way it is. So for, what's the biggest crowd that pushes back against this technology? Big footwear companies. <laughs> They're terrified. When in 2009, 2010, when the idea of barefoot running started to take off, they were writing editorials like, if you run barefoot, you're going to step on hypodermic needles and get Ebola and your kids won't get into college and your mortgage is going to go up. Like they were freaking out with the idea that people would just stop wearing their shoes. There was everything they were saying was patently false or completely no evidence behind it. Look, people treat us like we're the intervention. It's the other way around. All footwear up until the mid 60s looked like ours. And then big, thick, padded, motion-controlled shoes started getting developed. They're the intervention. And there's no evidence that those things improve performance or reduce injury. They've had lots of time to do it, a lot of money to do it. Hey, have not done it. I thought about the distance runner. There's a distance runner tribe, I think, out of Mexico. Yeah, the Tarumara. And then they also, I think that, who's it in Africa? There's there's a a bunch of Kenyan runners. I mean, there's all, all around the world, there are people who run in things that are ostensibly like ours or that started out like ours and evolved slightly. So the Tarumara makes sandals out of scraps of used car tires and leather to hold it on their foot. They're kind of like bricks, actually. They're pretty heavy, but that's what they run, and it's similar to barefoot. And they run barefoot, too, actually. As a kid, you know, we talked about before the show, That's I grew up in the South, so no wonder I was barefooted. I did have shoes for school, but <laughs> but I thought I was faster than barefooted than I ever thought I was in shoes. Well, it's probably true. One of my friends is a, a woman. She was an Olympian from New Zealand. She said she trained barefoot most of the time when she was in New Zealand. Then she moved to the States and got a shoe contract, and that's when she started getting injured. Do you think we'll ever see an Olympic athlete run in barefoot? We already have. It's already happened multiple times, although names just flew totally out of my brain. Zola Budd ran, I think it was the 10K. She ran that barefoot. Ron Hill ran in Mexico City barefoot. Bibi Bikila won the marathon barefoot. It happens. 
there's been a race. I wish I could remember who it was. Someone whose one shoe came off in the middle of the race and still placed. There's no evidence that footwear is helpful, except for the fact that most track surfaces now are really abrasive because mm-hmm. they're built for traction. So that's problematic. But you could make a better track surface and people would be running barefoot, except for the fact that most of those athletes are making a living by getting money from the shoe companies who give them the shoes to wear. So that's my favorite thing people say is, well, if you know barefoot is so much better, how come Olympians aren't going barefoot? It's like, well, because no one gives them a million dollars to run with no shoes. Mm-hmm. Can't sell no shoes. Can't sell no shoes. Well, for the folks that are just chomping at the bit, how do I Is it chomping or champing? I think it depends on where you're from. Oh, really? Yes. In the South, you have to have, I think, a longer. I think it's... Champing at the bit is probably it. I think it is. It's one of those things. I keep forgetting to look that up. Anyway. We've digressed. Barely. That was like 30 seconds tops. Not bad. Okay, back to whatever you were going to say. like the difference between Beagle and Bagel. (laughs) (laughs) Big difference. Uh, Yeah, we won't go there either. So... Do not put cream cheese on a Beagle. Yeah, <laughs> that works. How do folks find you in social media? Oh my gosh, couldn't be easier. We are Zero Shoes, X-E-R-O Shoes, plural, everywhere. So ZeroShoes.com, Facebook slash Zero Shoes, Facebook.com slash Zero Shoes, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. Just we're something slash Zero Shoes. And it is brain dead simple because I already ordered two pairs from awesome. you guys. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, my wife is a Tai chi Ah, She's so, a ta- yeah. Tai Chi player. Yeah, so shifting gears a bit. So for you, in your career, mm-hmm. influential book that you career? read. Career? You think I have a career? My God, that is the only person I know who has a career, who has been doing basically the same thing for 30 plus years is a friend of mine who's a street performer. I've done like nine different things. I don't know about you. All right. But in your current career. My current career. Yes. Influential book that's changed how you think. There are a couple. One is Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert from Harvard, the premise of which is really simple. Human beings spend pretty much every thought, some either overtly or subtly trying to predict the future and guess what will make us happy. We are incredibly bad at it. The only thing that we're worse at is remembering how bad we are at it. And even if we did get that thing that we think would make us happy, we would find that it's not true. And his prescription for solving that is find as many people as possible who have the thing that you think will make you happy and check with them and see if they've gotten any happier. And maybe you will discover from attrition that they're not any happier or any different. And then you'll just get over believing this thought that some imagined future will make you happy. That's one. He did a TED talk where he does what I just did in 20 minutes. Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. One of the premises being that most success is due to luck, fate, chance, and things that are massively out of your control. And the surest way to failure is by believing that you were the causal factor in all those and trying it again because you think you're so smart. If you look at the companies that have been featured as being successful companies in the past, you'll discover that many of them are long gone. People love to use Apple as a great example of what a successful company looks like, forgetting what Apple looked like in the 90s when they were using it for the exact opposite example. So I think the subtitle for Fooled by Randomness is something along the lines of the hidden role of luck and chance in, in markets and life. And we just undervalue that. When I got a master's in film, one of my teachers was the director, Milos Forman, who sadly just recently died. And someone said to Milos, what's the secret of making a good movie? He said, 90% of making a good movie is casting, and the other 10% is casting. And I feel like that about business. 90% is luck, and the other 10% is luck. And then there's a whole other 100% called work your ass off. And that's what we do. So those are, those are the two biggies that I can think yeah, of. Yeah, we were talking about that a little bit before uh, the episode. 
that you have just come off the trail of multitudes of trade shows and yeah. you know the glamorous side of running <laughs> your own business. I think you said what seven days. No, in this a row. is my fourteenth fourteen hour day in a row. Yeah, I haven't had Lane and I haven't had a vacation in five years. We've had one or two days off where, and a day off means only three hours of email. And for folks that think about, I, I want to own my own business, so I'm in control. <laughs> Well, that's my favorite thing when people we haven't seen in a while, they see us and they go, wow, you got your own business. That must be really fun. We go, you've never done this, have you? And, and look, I'm not saying that you can't do it in a way that is, that's different than this. Part of the reason that it's like this is because we're growing so fast. A few years in. And you I, bootstrapped a great deal of this. Yeah. A couple of years in, I said to Lena, wouldn't it be nice to have a little internet-based business, took a few hours a day, made a couple hundred grand a year. She's, that's what we have. I'm like, yep, too bad it can't stay that way. And our commitment to what we're doing to natural movement and to this business, because we bootstrapped it, we don't have some large amount of cash where we can have a party with hot and cold running, whatever things run hot and cold, and people who get obscene salaries for sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Everybody here is working their butt off. And we would love to have enough cash to bring in more talent, but I do not in any way harbor the illusion that that would reduce the amount of time that we're working on this for a while. It becomes, it changes the balance of what the work is from activity to managerial perhaps, but there's still a lot to do. And I am forever grateful that I'm doing this with my unbelievably brilliant wife, because there's no way this would happen without someone who is equally committed to the business as your partner. If I had to hire someone to do what she does, not possible. It's a gift. I'm the luckiest man on the planet. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's someone luckier, but I feel unbelievably grateful. You're probably faster than luckiest guy on the planet. Oh, yeah. I'm way faster than that guy, especially yeah. if he's Jewish. For you, looking back over your current career, what failure or at the time apparent failures served you or the company best and set you up for future achievement? I don't really have a frame of reference for failure. I don't put things on the scale of success and failure. It just doesn't make sense to me. But what I can tell you, perhaps a seeming answer to your question is that the markets change. I mean, we started this business in the recession. The barefoot running idea took off in 2009, 2010. We thought we were going to ride that wave till our retirement. And then the big shoe companies came in and fought like hell and came up with what they called minimalist footwear, which they claimed gave the same benefits, but didn't. And then they went after Vibram, the company that made those five-finger shoes, saying that they made unsubstantiated medical claims which they did. They claimed that those shoes would strengthen your feet, which, and they did not have proof for that. There was no study showing those shoes did, but the case settled for $3.75 million, which is chump change in something like this, because there were enough dots they could connect between that shoe and actual studies that did show that minimalist footwear improved foot strength. But the way it was spun in the media was, see, barefoot is bullshit. And so we've been fighting a multi-billion dollar behemoth that as the market changed, as the word barefoot became tainted in retail because of the Five Fingers lawsuit, and the fact that that shoe is really finicky, it's hard to get on your feet, doesn't fit everyone, wasn't marketed accurately. It was marketed as sort of a panacea, just put these on and your life will change. It's not the truth. So we've had to, we've had to change the direction we're paddling multiple times because of various things. Production problems cause issues that we have to deal with. So it's it's just one thing after another. Early on, Lena was really upset one night. She said something like, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I said, no one knows what they're doing. This is uncharted territory. Our job is just to figure out every day what we need to learn next so we can deal with what happened. And like the next day, she's like, okay, got it. So, uh, 
so everything is just a constant readjusting while still maintaining true to our course. And we are so lucky that we've been able to bootstrap this because we know companies that believe in what we do, but have not been able to do it because they have corporate overlords who tell them to do different things. Great answer. Oh, good. If you could put an ad on page one of the local paper, sharing your message, what would it say and why? Your shoes suck. Find out why. I like it. Yeah. You know, that, that not really a corporate logo, but that would work. If I could start it all over again, I would call our company Truth Footwear, and our motto, our tagline would be bullshit not included. <laughs> Can't do it. It would be really fun. I like that. I mean, again, I don't like it when people make money by lying to other people, and that's my take on what the footwear world has been in the last 45 years. Every six months, it's some magic new technology that's going to change your life and fix Air everything. Air shoes, spring in the heels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The this, the yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Adidas right now is doing a thing. And here, if you want to be a footwear snob, it's pronounced Adidas. Oh, uh, yes. Because it's uh, Adidasler. I, I was offended. Uh, I knew you were. That's why I clarified. <laughs> I wanted to make sure you knew that I knew. They've made a lot of money with a, a foam that they call Boost Foam. And they show how it's so much better than the other company's foam. Of course, they're using a foam that no other company has ever used. But they show that a one-pound steel ball bounces off their Boost Foam like really, really well. Well, if you want the ball to bounce better, you just bounce it off of a steel plate because, you know, physics. And But they're not making steel-plated shoes. So they've made all this money off this side. Oh, and by the way, you're not a one-pound steel ball. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. In some alternate universe, you may be, but not in this one. When you hit the ground, if you're a 150-pound person, you hit the ground with between 300 and 600 pounds of force. One-pound steel ball is meaningless. But they have shown this little bouncy ball thing all over the place and people go well that must be good well where's the proof for you allocation of time what's been the? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, i'm sorry this is yeah, a question this is going to be a question okay the best allocation of time or initiative that's helped this company most the fact that i don't sleep i mean really one of our employees came in one monday morning and said how are you doing i said what do you mean he's well you know how are you doing are you taking care of yourself i said i'm not sure what you're getting at he's you know you're resting and feeling good it's like dude I'm just doing what needs to get done. And I do that until like on a Saturday or Sunday, I fall down and take a nap for three hours. But I'm lucky, cursed, ADD, something, whatever it is. My to-do list is infinitely long and I'm just trying to check things off of it. So I don't really think about time allocation. I just try and do what's next. I was thinking about time allocation and you're still competitively sprinting. Yeah. So in your schedules and stuff, what does your training regimen look like? Well, that was pretty easy. I'm an old guy. I can't do as much as I would like to. So I'm on the track twice a week, and then I try to hit the weight room twice a week. What's your best exercise for improving your speed? There's no evidence that there's any exercise that demonstrably improves speed. So we do a bunch of things that we think do. So things like plyometric things, like box jumps, explosive stuff, things that are similarly fast to sprinting. And there's some things you can do for strength, like weighted hip thrusts. Some people argue about squats. I have a fondness for the one-arm dumbbell snatch, which sounds like something our president would do. There are certain explosive exercises that are, that are very satisfying because you're moving large amounts of weight very quickly. No, I think that's a one-arm bombshell snatch. Right? <laughs> that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> it's the one-arm snatch snatch. <laughs> oh, boy. What is your most unusual habit or what my, many others may consider out of the ordinary? You've been experiencing that for the last half hour. Do you need me to elaborate? <laughs> Jesus. What would people say is your most unusual habit that helps you succeed? Oh, I don't know what helps me succeed. Again, I don't use that context. I don't settle for the status quo. Very curious, and I want to know what the essential cause of something is. And if someone, 
this is a weird thing. I can sort of spot urban myth from a mile away. So that sounds really weird. So when years ago, I'd heard for the umpteenth time about some study that followed the graduating class from Princeton from 1952 or something, and that 20 years later, the 3% that were more successful than the other 97%, the only thing different between the two groups was at the top, 3% had written down their goals. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard that from, it was 1952, 1958, 1962, whatever the hell it was, from Princeton, from Yale, from Harvard, from Oberlin, from Montgomery Community College. Once I started, I got the hint that that was probably nonsense, and that's not true. I got the hint that it was bullshit, and I just said nonsense to tone that down. Oh, that's one thing I cuss a lot. So I put out the word on the inner tubes saying I would pay someone $1,000 if they could show me the original study, and I'd give someone 1000 bucks if they could prove that it didn't happen, even though you can't prove the non-existence of something. 20 minutes later, I got an email back from the guy who started Snopes.com saying, here's some research people did. It was actually in Fast Company magazine where they found that it was a little circular loop of everyone quoting everyone else, and the first person mm-hmm. probably made it up so it never happened. I said, oh, man, you, that was so easy. I feel kind of reluctant to give you a thousand bucks, to be honest. He goes, I didn't think you were going to give me anything. I said, oh, okay, well, here's $500. So I seem to have just a sense of of when something is, what's a good phrase for it? When something has been repeated over and over and over, but to the point where people think it's true, but it's not, there's a flavor, there's a sound to that. There's something where you can just hear the lack of thinking involved. One of my best friends, he's the guy who actually suggested that I run barefoot. We became friends because we had the same coach, the same running coach. And one day I noticed he wasn't doing certain drills that the coach was recommending we do. And I noticed that because I wasn't doing them either. And I walked up and said, why aren't you doing this? He goes, well, because that one's bullshit. I said, yeah, I know. So there's just so much mythology that's passed down generation to generation. And anyway, I'm good at hearing that and finding what's true underneath it. So that's how this footwear thing. The other thing, people don't necessarily notice this, but I have this wacky skill or habit or observational something, I'm good at understanding movement. So as an undergrad, I did research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And I've taught everything between Zen archery and yoga and Tai Chi to running gymnastics and long jumping and pole vaulting. So I'm good at figuring out what the essential factor is in certain kinds of movements and helping people focus on those rather than the mythological ones. So my one of my sprinting coaches, I remember him saying to me one day, we're doing a drill and he says, you know, you have to get your hips over your feet. I said, I'm in the middle of the air. I can't move the position of my joints in that way. That doesn't work. I said, what you're saying, and you don't know it, is that I'm pushing off in the wrong way so that my hips aren't over my feet when they should be. So you're saying something that's the effect and we got to go back and find the cause. And so I'm good at doing that kind of English translation. For you, what they may not know is that when you wrote, right, a screenplay? I wrote a number of screenplays. And so, but on the evolution of that, Mm -hmm. then you created a software company. Yeah, same thing. So I have a master's in film, and I focused in screenwriting. And the software that existed at the time for putting scripts in the very arcane and ridiculous format that they have to be in for submission was all very hyper-complicated and not good. And I figured out the essential way of developing of designing software to allow the kind of formatting that's required for screenplays to happen totally automatically on the fly on the screen with no extra keystrokes instead you get in fact you get rid of keystrokes to do it and for i that came out in 1992 and to this day no one has been able to replicate what i invented what's it called scriptware scriptware yeah oddly enough the name follows function yeah could be a iteration uh yeah zero shoes scriptware 
Over the past three years, few years, mm. what belief or protocol have you put in place in the company that's most impacted what you do? Hmm. My half comical answer to that is you'd have to ask Lena. She's the one who cares about the company. And what I mean by that is that she's focused on people and corporate culture. And I tend to be a bit myopic about just getting things done and marketing and product stuff. Given my druthers, this is going to sound paradoxical. I mean, I'm a very extroverted person. I like individuals. I don't like people. (laughs) So given my druthers, just put me in a room. And then when I'm done doing my work, let's go have some fun with a bunch of people. So I don't have a good answer for that. Actually, I do have one because I participate in the meetings that my wife makes me come to. We have codified many things in the development cycle of footwear so that we aren't under the gun. We're not always racing to get something done. We have a little more time and space to deal with the challenges of making footwear like the kind that we make. Uh, That's been a huge help and calmed people down quite a bit. The other thing, boy, what's the other one? I don't know. We, this company is pretty casual. I don't think of it as hierarchical, which is frankly a bit of a problem. Like there's someone here who always calls me boss and I don't correct him because he likes doing that, but I don't see it that way. These are all my friends. We're all peers trying to make something happen. We, oh, actually there's an answer to your question. We've implemented a profit sharing program. We're finally able to do this and the shares get divided equally among everyone who's here part-time, slightly different from full-time. But we, we don't think there's anyone more or less important than anybody else in this company, and we do things to demonstrate the truth of that. That would be... Yeah, I mean... So if you were going to offer advice to a new CEO that was taking the role for the first time... Quit. Get a government job with a pension. Get out before it's too late! <laughs> and I'm totally serious when I say that. If... I have friends now who are retiring from government jobs with pensions. Man, that's nice. That's a sweet gig. And there are government jobs that had you told me they existed when I was in my 20s, I would have been interested in that. But it never occurred to me. My dad once said to me, I was trying to hit him up for money to start something. He said, why don't you just go get a job? I said, eh, it wouldn't end well for anybody. But there are jobs that I would have liked. Boy, a gig where you could like go home at five and have a weekend and Lifeguard on the beach in Manhattan Beach sounds pretty good. That'd be nice. Well, you got people, you got to deal with people. You got. Well, you could let them drown. Well, you could, but then you'd be fired. There's something. But the other thing about the get a government job with a pension is if that's tempting to you, then you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. And if if that makes no sense to you, even if your entrepreneurial idea is incredibly stupid, you're going to do it anyway. So I can't dissuade you. And if if you are an entrepreneur, and if I could dissuade you, I should, because this is not for the faint of heart. Yeah, it, it turns into work. Well, it's not that it turns into work so much as that it's just hard. The responsibility is huge. The risk is, those of us who do this don't think of it as risky. If I go bankrupt, I go bankrupt. I don't give a crap. But that's a real possibility at all times. At all times. And you have employees that depend on you. We have, we have 24 people who depend on us. And then without, when we think of our retail partners and distributors, I mean, there are hundreds of people for whom we're responsible. That is not lost on me ever. For you, what do you think the biggest misconception about your role as CEO? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I called a friend of mine who's a serial CEO one day, and I said, I don't think I'm CEO material. And he goes, oh, no, no, you've misunderstood how the CEO thing works. I said, how's that? He goes, there's different kinds of CEOs. There's financial CEOs, which is what I am. There's organizational CEOs. There's leadership CEOs who just have the sort of cheerleader role. And there's product CEOs or product marketing CEOs. That's what you are. Because frankly, I think that's a better kind because that's 
more rare. I look at it and I wish I were the organizational leadership guy. I wish I was kind of a rah-rah, sis-boom-ba guy. Apparently, I'm good at enlisting people into my vision for things, but that's only because it's true, really. I'm, I don't have to, it doesn't take any effort to enlist someone if what you're saying is obviously true. And luckily and happily, I only do things that are obviously true because why would I otherwise? But so what the hell is the question? <laughs> Yeah, we were we were talking about misconceptions on your role. Oh, yeah. So I actually think that Lena and I are sort of Siamese twins when it comes to running this thing. She is technically the CFO and we and because we are a married couple with shared vision, we are combined a better CEO than almost any CEO I've met. So the misconceptions are things like I'm the one who's supposed to know everything about the numbers. She knows everything about the numbers. I know the high-level stuff, but if you want to ask her down to the penny what everything is, you talk to Lena. Or that my job is to just be some sort of inspirational cheerleader. Or that the biggest one, and maybe I even succumb to this, I meet CEOs who are really serious and they have a kind of sense about business as a concept. Like they could run any kind of business because they understand business. And while what I understand is marketing and product, and Lena understands finance and understands the business level, but I'm not that guy who can walk into any business and restructure things based on some seeming understanding of what a business is. I build brands. That's what I do. That's your historical work in the, in the yeah. internet space. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about you do copywriting as well, which would be a follow-on yeah. from what you did at the film school. Yeah. When I invented scriptware, I came up with the product. I built the brand. If people look at it now, you're going to see it's been it's been neglected for the last dozen years. The whole long story, but regardless, I start from the product side and the marketing side and create uh, something from there. I'm not the guy who's doing it by going out and raising millions of dollars because I'm tapped into the VC community and blah blah blah. I make stuff. You know, for you looking back over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to, and why? I literally can't answer that question about anything in my life because at the time that I did it, it was the best decision I could make given all of the circumstances of my beliefs. So I, I, I don't second guess that. That's a good answer in and of itself. Okay. Works. In your day-to-day operation as CEO, what's the personal habit or self-talk that keeps you going? I don't have one. Same thing. Just show up and work? Yeah. I got to just do what's next. Is there a quote that you find useful or meaningful? that you can repeat oh sorry no i don't the reason that i've gotten no's for all these is that to a certain extent these questions have evolved out of what i refer to as the business psychology world Mm -hmm. that there are certain things you need to believe certain activities you need to take all of this is determined in hindsight we look at companies and we say what made them successful because this is what human beings do our job as human beings is to try to figure out what things led to the cause that we ultimately want so that we can recreate them to get Pattern what we recognition. want. recognition. Correct. Again, horrible at it. So I have no interest in it. People say, who do you admire? I say nobody, not because I'm self-aggrandizing or narcissistic, but because I don't know their life. I can't be the next Richard Branson. What's the proof? There hasn't been another Richard Branson yet. There's no other Steve Jobs. There's no other Bill Gates. There's no other... Pick someone who's the fry cook at Wendy's. There's no other one of him either, really. So I don't concern myself with how other people did things in circumstances that are unreproducible. Did you start out that way? (laughs) I mean, this this sounds like a stupid question. No, it's a good question. But as a kid, or as you went through the educational hierarchy that you did, how did you start getting to this point? A little bit of both. 
Uh, my mother likes to say, to quote my son, this is true. And so I had some of that to begin with, but there was places where I was completely blind as well. So I was heavily involved in all forms of new age nonsense. I guess that gave away the punchline. I was kind of new agey. Oh, let's do the easy one. I spent a lot of time meditating from the time I was eight up until the time I was about 38. And then I discovered that I also happen to hang out with the people who run things. So I'm hanging out with people who are other people's guru. And they're saying to me things like, I have a friend, he's a big deal Zen teacher. He says, if my students knew what was happening in my mind when I sat to meditate, they would fire me and then kill me. And by knowing all these teachers personally, I came to the inescapable conclusion that there was no there there, or more accurately, the promise of most spiritual practice. I've never met anyone who's gotten the end result. Or if they did, it's just as likely they got it from maturing and aging and just getting over themselves, not from from sitting on their butt and watching their breathing for some amount of time. Zen archery is an interesting thing. The structure of the Zen archery practice is you end up limiting yourself to a certain number of thoughts, like trying to look good or being afraid or wanting to prove something. And after some number of years of just those four thoughts over and over, you just bore the shit out of yourself. And when those thoughts come up, you just don't pay attention. And they call that some kind of growth or awakening or whatever. It's just boring yourself. It's just understanding the process of thinking well enough that you're no longer swayed by certain kinds of thoughts, like what we talked about before, of believing that we know what will make us happy in the future. And I no longer believe that just because I examined it so thoroughly and found no evidence for the efficacy of it that I don't care when that comes up. So um, so in a similar vein, what was the question? Man. We were, we were actually heading toward a quote. Oh, oh, quote. Yeah, so I don't do quotes. So it's just not my – the whole phenomenon of using hindsight bias – to figure out some common factor that reliably leads to some place. If it existed, everybody would have done it by now. So I will name names because I hope that it starts a conversation with this guy, Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. He's got this whole thing that the big companies, what grew them is that they have a why. Complete bullshit. I can give you an infinitely long list of companies that had a great why that went out of business and companies that succeeded despite the fact that they didn't know what the hell they were doing. The woman who created the hair Dini that sold like one for every human being on the planet, didn't have a big why when she came up with it. One of the most successful businesses ever. Spanx, maybe she had a why, but that's not what made the business successful. It made the business successful because it made you look thinner and it was marketed really well. So we just love the idea that we can figure out what thing will reliably give us what we want. It's just not true. Life is more complicated. You could have had the best why, the best business planning, the best mentors, the best whatever. If you were starting a Middle Eastern tourist agency on September 10th, you were screwed. But if you happen to open your duct tape and plastic sheeting business, you couldn't beat the money away. So I just don't care about trying to use, other than the obvious lessons about Make a good product, give people what they want, treat people well, provide real customer service, do provide right a good thing. price, do the right thing. Show up on time. Show up on time and do the Which work. Which I didn't do today. <laughs> That's okay. But you get my point. I mean, there's no secret. There's just working your ass off and crossing your fingers. Take care of your customers. Yeah, and cross your fingers. I mean, really, the infinite number of things that could go wrong on a daily basis that could shut down any business is unfathomable. And so you prepare for that. You want to be as protected as you can, knowing that you can only do so much. The thought came to my mind is, so back to your running, 
and so you're out of race. <laughs> and you're, I guess, depending on age and handicap, they'll stagger the race. Well, what they do is they break it down by age. Although there is a handicapped 100 meters that we do at this one race. Mm-hmm. So the older you are, the less you have to run. And I'll tell you really quick, it's the most exciting race in the world because the handicapping is very accurate. And so it's people who are in their 20s to people who are in their 90s, and it's always a photo finish. It is so cool. Anyway. As you're getting ready for the start, what's in your mind? (laughs) Not much. Someone come and shake my hand and hit me in the back and go, yeah, have a good race. And I go, you know, there's no money at the end of this, right? Just get to the end, have a good time. Oh, I want to kick your ass, but just get to the end and have a good time. So it's one of the reasons that I love sprinting is that it is so simple in your mind. The moment between set and the gun going off is the quietest my mind ever is. I adore that moment. And that's not even accurate because there's no feeling of pleasure. It's just this waiting that is exquisite. After the fact, it's exquisite. In the moment, it's just waiting. It's very simple. But you only get a couple thoughts. You get drive, lift, hold on. That's about it. And I adore that. Now, my favorite thing at the end of a race, someone says, how'd you do? And I go, with or without the excuse. Because you never get it perfect. So everyone's always got the story. Before they tell you the time, I dragged my foot a little too far in that thing. I kind of tripped out of the blocks. I didn't get over my feet right. It's like, I don't care. What's your time? Mm -hmm. It's just fun. If I was to talk to your colleagues and ask them what you're best at, what would they say? I have no idea. Uh, No, I take that What do you think you're best at? I don't know that either. The thing that I think they would say is coming up with ideas. Okay. I'm an ideator. Well, I tell you, we met at that celebration that we touched on a little bit for Boulder Industries. And, and it's had, so good to see you in clothes for the first time, by yeah, the way. And coming here, I was looking forward to, as we were talking before, I said you have a very fast retrieval of mm. vocabulary. Mm. So I was looking forward to it. How'd I do? You did great. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I like words. They're fun. Words is good. The Well, thank you. Yeah. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your day, putting up for me being late because people in Denver do not know how to drive in the rain. Or the snow or the sun. Pretty much covers the waterfront. Mm-hmm. So, but again, thank you so much for your time and pleasure. If you folks out there have not looked into his shoes, go to Zero Shoes. You can get shoes other than mine. I'm wearing mine, but we sell ones just like them. Yeah, don't get his shoes, but yeah. get some like. Them. Yeah, but go to the site and check it out because I did, and I am a proud owner of a couple of pair. Awesome. Let me just say, first of all, thank you. This is totally a blast. And you don't need to thank me for taking out time. This is literally the only kind of time that I get to rest. I find this more restful than answering thousand emails. And if anyone got any benefit out of this, they completely misunderstood me. So I <laughs> just want to be clear about that. <laughs> Steve, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Pleasure.